Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Happy birthday, Wikipedia. The online encyclopedia is 20 years old today. We take a look at how the site's structure and culture have kept it going against the odds, thriving and growing on an internet that's very different from that of its early years. And a moral panic is sweeping Afghanistan. The kids are staying up all night playing a violent video game. Authorities want to shut it down, but the country's youth shrug it off. They don't see the government doing much else for them. First up, though. Polls have closed in Uganda in an election which has been dogged by violence and where the government has this week shut down the internet. Preliminary results suggest a strong lead for Yoweri Museveni, who's kept an iron grip on the country for nearly three and a half decades. His main opponent is Bobby Wine, a singer-turned-politician. Final results are expected tomorrow. The contest has revealed deep fissures between the rich, who support Mr. Museveni, and a younger generation who back Mr. Wine. These tensions reflect a wider political unease in the region, where concerns are growing about threats to democracy. So I'm standing in the back garden of Bobby Wine. Liam Taylor writes for The Economist and is based in Kampala. Uh, He's come out to speak to the press just moments ago and said that the election was seen the worst rigging in Ugandan history. He described himself as the president-elect and said he is winning by far. Uh, So he certainly thinks he's won this vote. And has he won? So some Ugandan media stations are putting out preliminary results from the votes which have come in so far, suggesting that the incumbent president, Stephanie, has a very healthy lead. But it's very hard to verify exactly what's going on because the internet has been shut down across the country since the night before the vote, uh, which makes it very difficult to know what's, what's happening. And that's why we're speaking to you by phone today. But, but why has that shutdown happened? So one reason why it may have been is because um, in the build-up to the vote, uh, Bobby Wine had launched an app uh, for his supporters, encouraging them to take pictures of the results forms from each individual polling station, upload them on this app, and so then the opposition would be able to produce their own alternative results. The government is is trying to clamp down on that. Um, Also, the government is trying to clamp down on on communications generally because they're very worried that if the result is declared for President Museveni, there will be uh, unrest and protests in the streets of Kampala. We've spoken before on the show about the intimidation Mr. Wine has, has faced, including an arrest in November. Has that continued? So Bobby Wine is alone, essentially, at home. It's just him, his wife, and, and one member of staff. His children are out of the country. His closest friends, his campaign team, are all in prison. He's even driving himself everywhere these days because he has no one to drive him. 
throughout the campaign, he has faced intimidation from the security services. His car has been shot at. He's routinely tear gassed. He's been arrested on three occasions. And this is all coming from the government's fear about his huge popularity in, in urban areas and especially with young people. He's a singer. He grew up in one of the ghettos here in Kampala, as he calls it. He calls himself the ghetto president. And that popularity, he's hoping to translate into votes. You mentioned that Mr. Wine is, is calling himself the president, but the, the early returns don't seem to bear that claim out. I mean, do you think he can make a, a significant showing? So the chances of him being declared the winner are almost certainly nil. It's very difficult to tell, of course, what the real sentiments of many people around the country are because of the atmosphere of intimidation and because the state and the ruling party emerged so closely together. Some civil society groups were trying to collect information from around the country about the vote yesterday. The centre they had set up was raided. 26 people um, were arrested. And so in that kind of climate, it's very difficult to know what people really think. But what we do know is that Ms. Stephanie will almost certainly be declared the winner tomorrow. And he can rely as well in part on his, his support in many rural areas. Although Bobby Wine is, is very popular in the cities, most Ugandans still live in the countryside, where it's very difficult for opposition parties to organize and where many people are still grateful, especially older people, for the stability that Ms. Stephanie has brought to the country after wars in the 1970s and 1980s. But aside from the, the voter intimidation suppression, is, is there also good old-fashioned ballot stuffing? So I have heard from some activists in the opposition who have told me that they have witnessed ballot stuffing in some of the rural constituencies. It's very, very difficult to verify that. From people I've been speaking to around the country and from, from my own experience yesterday, it seems that the vote yesterday was calm and things were proceeding fairly well, apart from a few technical hitches like late delivery of polling materials. The thing is that Museveni has effectively rigged the system. Everything is set up in his favor. And so in the end, he may not even need to rig the vote. And you you say that yesterday, today, things seem quite calm. Do you expect that to continue regardless of the outcome? So some people in the opposition have been talking about a so-called plan B. They've been very vague about what that might mean. But what it probably will involve is calling for some kind of street protest after the result has been announced. It's very, very difficult for the opposition to, to mobilize lots of people on the streets. Uh, in November, when there were protests after Bobby Wine was briefly detained, more than 50 people were shot dead by security forces. And there is a heavy presence of police and army around the city. So the opposition will certainly try to organize protests, but whether they will succeed is another matter. So it sounds as if this is, this is all zipped up and that nothing really will change. So that's the likeliest outcome, um, and it has been in, in all of the previous elections under the 70s regime. The problem is with every passing year, the 70s support is eroding. More young people uh, are getting frustrated in trying to demand change. And at some point, that system is going to break. It might not be tomorrow, it might not be this year, but it can't continue forever. And what about the region more widely? What are the implications of this election, do you think? So this election took place in the context of growing concern about democracy in East Africa, uh, in places like Burundi, in places like Rwanda, recently in Tanzania, which held highly flawed elections at the end of last year. And so for many young people in in East Africa are increasingly frustrated by what they see as as the obstruction of, of their voice. And this is going to cause increasing tensions in the years to come. Liam, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
Okay. Wikipedia.org. And let's see what Wikipedia says about itself. Wikipedia is a multilingual, open collaborative online encyclopedia. The Economist magazine placed it as the 13th most visited place on the web. Newspaper, actually. Wikipedia was launched on January 15th, 2001 by Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger. Perhaps the most surprising thing is how little it's changed uh, over the years. That's Jimmy Wales himself speaking yesterday on our sister show, The Economist Asks. We've always had the vision of a free encyclopedia. We've always been community-driven. Obviously, from day one, when the only words on the site were me typing hello world to get started, to today, with millions and millions of entries, that has changed. The structure of Wikipedia, edited by and freely available to everybody, might not have changed much since Mr. Wales founded it. But the tenor and the scope of the internet around it very much has. We have millions of people who donate every year. We're really happy with that model. It means we're not beholden to any major donors. You know, sometimes people say to me, oh, why don't you just get Google and Facebook to pay for it? And I think maybe after a few years of a bit of backlash against big tech, maybe they're happy that we're so independent. So as it turns 20 today, Wikipedia stands out as something of an anomaly on today's internet. This is not, shall we say, big tech's finest hour and hasn't been for several years. I think a lot of people are much more aware now of the sort of downsides of the internet and the downsides of the big companies that dominate it. But I think Wikipedia is one big exception to that. Tim Cross is our technology editor. It's not really seen as a tech giant at all, even though in some ways it is. But to the extent that it is, it's the friendly tech giant. And I think structurally, you know, it's defied a lot of the standard Silicon Valley recipe for success. So it hasn't made anyone a billionaire. It has no shareholders. There's no venture capitalists behind it. It sells no advertising. But there's this long-running gag about Wikipedia, right? That, that it's just as well that it works in practice because it doesn't work in theory. And it works in practice really well. It does. I mean, people point to this landmark, I guess, article in Nature in 2005, which compared Wikipedia with Britannica and found that generally on the whole, the number of errors between the two encyclopedias was roughly comparable. And there's been more research in that direction ever since. And it broadly comes to the same conclusion. You know, Wikipedia is generally pretty much as accurate as the expert written encyclopedias that preceded it. Its structure does leave it vulnerable, I guess, to things that Britannica wasn't vulnerable to. You know, you can vandalize Wikipedia, you can run pranks. There was a famous one uh, in 2008 when someone inserted as a joke this claim that a coati, which is a little mammal that lives in South America, is called the Brazilian aardvark, which it isn't. But by the time someone had got around to correcting that, it had spread far and wide onto other websites and into newspapers and even, I think, into a book. So how does Wikipedia deal with those vulnerabilities to deliberate misinformation, I guess? So it's partly sort of formal methods. So they now run algorithms that monitor their articles, you know, looking for obvious signs of mischief, like huge changes made by a brand new editor or something like that. And sometimes it's formal policies around sensitive events. So in the recent American presidential election, they restricted the ability to edit articles on that topic to people who'd been registered with the site for a month and who already had I think it was 500 edits to their name. But I think even beyond that, a lot of it is just to do with the internal culture that the site's created around sort of accuracy and fairness and so on. And when we interviewed Catherine Ma, who uh, is the executive director and CEO of the Wikimedia Foundation, which oversees the Wikipedia project, she had some interesting points about the way the site appeals to human nature. Wikipedia harnesses two very different motivations, one of which is a high-minded, aspirational mission orientation to provide free knowledge for the world and what 
folks know about the positive impact that that can have on society and also a desire to demonstrate what you know, a desire to be right on the internet, uh, what's often known as Cunningham's Law, the best way to get the right answer is to put the wrong one out there and wait for someone to correct you. And so those humans acting on human nature, what, what do we know about them sort of demographically? That's actually one of the criticisms that people sometimes make about the site. So it's true the editors do come from all over the place. Uh, but if you talk to the Wikimedia Foundation, they'll tell you they reckon maybe 80% of them are male and they're skewed quite heavily towards North America and Europe. And Ms. Ma told us that's something that the foundation's been trying to address for a while. We would like to have a lot more participation from women, um, from groups who've been sort of historically excluded from the production of knowledge, because there's a lot that we're missing in terms of how those perspectives and those life experiences inform what gets written about on Wikipedia and how. And then the other question is where the readers are from. So if you look at the data, it's most popular in America, Europe, Russia, Japan, places like that, but it's much less read per head of population in places like India and sub-Saharan Africa. That is starting to change. So between 2010 and 2018, the number of active Wikipedia editors who work in the languages that tend to be spoken in richer countries fell slightly, while the number who work in the languages spoken in the poorer parts of the world, that more than doubled. And meanwhile, the structure of the internet, the way people access the internet, has been changing all the while. Is Wikipedia sort of still fit for the moment in that way? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the internet of today is very, very different from the internet of 20 years ago. Um, One of the biggest changes is that most people now don't get on the internet via their desktop computers. They get onto the internet via their smartphones. And that's especially true in poorer countries where a lot of people only have the option of getting on via their smartphones. So one of the things that the site's been trying to do is to move to a sort of mobile-friendly culture, which isn't easy because, you know, a smartphone screen is <laughs> not very good for writing great big long thousand word articles on. But they're trying to encourage people to use phones to do sort of smaller editing tasks like fixing spelling mistakes or putting references in, that kind of thing. And I think part of the hope there is it's a sort of gateway drug and you at least give people some stake in the site and you hope that in future they might start to contribute more and more. Well, I suppose that that's the point in terms of assessing Wikipedia today. I mean, the internet and the way people use it and the way people think of it is so different now from when it was born. That's right. And I think one of the biggest changes is the sort of cultural assumptions that surround it. So if you look at the modern internet, you know, it's dominated by commerce. It's become quite cynical. Um, It's pretty different from what the internet was like in the late 90s and early 2000s. You know, back then, there really was this strand of idealism, of techno-optimism, which basically said that, you know, computers are tools for liberation and education and enlightenment. You don't hear much of that utopian language these days. And when we asked Ms. Marr about that, her response was really pretty interesting. I think it would be very difficult for Wikipedia to be founded today, not because there's something different about people, uh, but because the internet is a very different place. And I think for my money, that's the sort of most interesting thing about Wikipedia. You know, a lot of the time people obsess about things they can measure, like monthly average users or revenue or how many ads are being served or whatever. But Wikipedia really does kind of show that the culture of a website, fuzzy and sort of imprecise as that is, does really seem to matter and does seem to be what basically makes it work as well as it does. Thanks very much for your time, Tim. Thanks, Jason. To hear much more from Wikipedia co-founder Jimmy Wales, listen to our interview with him on this week's episode of The Economist Asks, available on the very finest podcast platforms.
many of its millions of players around the world, the video game Player Unknown's Battlegrounds is known as just PUBG. The premise is simple. Players are dropped onto foreign terrain. They have to gather all of the available weapons and kill everyone else. In other words, it's violent. And that has led authorities in countries from India to Iraq, and now Afghanistan, to try and clamp down on its popularity. In Afghanistan itself, it's not easy to get figures for how popular it is. Ben Farmer reports on Pakistan and Afghanistan for The Economist. But mobile phone companies reckon that something like 100,000 people might be playing at peak times. That is a lot of people playing at the same time. In Afghanistan, to try and get the most out of the internet, which can be a bit strained at times, most people play in the early hours when the internet is fastest. And it seems that when schools and universities locked down because of the COVID pandemic in Afghanistan, that really supercharged the, the popularity of a game that was already very well known. And so why are there concerns about how many people are playing this game or, or how much? School teachers and parents are concerned that pupils are staying up all night, they're falling asleep in their lessons, they're not paying attention. There's been concern that this is a game which imitates violence, which is all too common in Afghanistan, in the real world. And the spectacle of huge numbers of the Afghan youth mimicking this violence online has led to an almost a moral panic in the country. The Afghan government's Ministry of Hajj and Religious Affairs has said that it's so worried about the game that it's declared it's harmful for mental health and warned that it could provoke a violent mindset in young people. And presumably in a fine tradition of gamers, I imagine the gamers themselves are brushing all of this off. Well, quite. So the gamers say that the game, far from just being violent, it encourages teamwork, it helps them improve their English, but they also say that there is very little else for them to do. And that really sort of gets to the heart of the conflict of this story. Kabul has precious few parks or recreational facilities for young people. There's a risk of violence or abuse on the streets, which means the parents are keen to keep their children in. Others complain that they're unable to find work. The United Nations estimates that four in 10 Afghans are either not working or not studying. And so what about that perspective, Ben? Is the government actually trying to go about shutting this game down? Well, I think what this looks like to me is it's a populist move by the government to sort of appease families and some politicians and some religious hardliners. But I think they're probably not going to go through with it just because of the technical difficulties. The government says that it is talking to mobile operators to put the ban into force. But many Afghan youth question what the Afghan government is doing for them anyway, and they're infuriated by the ban. Thanks very much for joining us, Ben. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here on Monday. Hold up. 